everybody, and welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast, May 2019 slash Season 44 in review. My name is Mike Bloom, here to break down the last three shows of Season 44 of Saturday Night Live, and of course, talk about things on the whole. Speaking on the whole, let me introduce my co-host for this podcast. Just took his rectics out, he's ready to go, Mario Lanza. Mario, how are you? Oh, I'm so excited to be back here with my sidekick, Mike Bloom. Thank you once again for joining me. Uh, oh, wow. They just really subverted the power structures there. I don't know what to say. You provided me some text to read here, and I don't know if I'm going to do it now, but I fear you might reach your hand out of this web camera here and throw some uh, some vodka on me. I'll let Janine Pirro if I don't. Well, I just had to say that because I was not here for our last podcast. You had to bring in a ringer. I know you brought in uh, Andrew, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I'm just so excited to be back. I feel like I, I was away from home for a while. So thank you for keeping the home fires burning while I was out there in the world earning a living, Mike Bloom. Yeah, I mean, we're like the Motel 6 here. We're always going to keep the light on for you, Mario. So come on in, settle in on that bed. Try not to think about what liquids are permeating in this surface. And uh, let's get down to it. Let's talk the end of season 44. So we're going to couch a lot of this discussion in the last three episodes hosted by Adam Sandler, Emma Thompson, and at the time we're recording this last night's season finale with the one and only Paul Rudd. But I feel like at the end, and we'll probably, you know, weave this in throughout our discussion here, a lot of thoughts about season 44 as an entirety on SNL, and I'm sure we'll talk about what we liked about it, maybe what we did it, and what we would like to see from the show as it moves into its 45th season But first, let's start with these three episodes. Mario, how do you feel season 44 ended with its final streak of episodes? I think it fizzled out like the world's wettest fart. (laughs) Oh, no. Was (laughs) it being played on a music box? Yes. Strangely enough, it was. No. um, I Okay, I watched these three episodes today. And just to get them back into the mindset. And I really love the Adam Sandler episode. Like almost everything that did not involve Beck and Kyle in that episode was pretty good. <laughs> they were the big hole in the yeah. show, uh, ironically, yeah. not based on their song. Because that's the sketch you want right at the start of the episode, that one. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I like the Adam Sandler episode. And I, like I, I watched it again today, and I really liked it the second time. It really had a nice vibe of nostalgia and fun and lightheartedness and silliness. And it really just felt like maybe maybe the best episode of the season which Hmm. i don't know a lot of people have said it was up there in the top i would put it in my top three probably and then you had the episodes after that which i just did not like at all Hmm. good and especially this paul rudd one last night like good lord like my wife almost dared me to finish watching this episode she's (laughs) like i'm she's like i'm done with this after 15 minutes i can't handle this she's like this season is so terrible the writing is so weak like She's like, why do you even watch the show? And I'm like, well, because I have to do a podcast on it tomorrow. She's like, no, you don't have to. Just make up anything. Just pretend you saw the episode and make up sketches and people will buy it. So that was the the how, how SNL chose to finish off their season last night with one of the weakest episodes I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I totally am in agreement with you. Basically across the board. I, at the moment, am not as high on the Adam Sandler episode as you are. It's definitely edging up on my top five. I think I put it at number six in my overall rankings, but it was pretty damn solid. And we'll definitely talk about, speaking of ringer aspects, I believe the rumor is that Robert Smigel did come in to work on some stuff. And you could definitely, much like the Mulaney episode, feel a different tone around it, maybe speaking mm-hmm. to that nostalgia you were speaking about. But there was a lot... We, I don't think you and I discussed this a couple months ago when the rumors first started. What would an Adam Sandler appearance on modern-day SNL look like 
you know, mixing those two eras, it turns out it was a, it was a pretty good mixture, a pretty tasty yeah. mixture. Uh, the Emma Thompson episode definitely falls in the middle, but it definitely falls more near the back of the pack. I, I totally agree with you that I think Emma Thompson, I will say across the board this season, has had fantastically game hosts, and Emma Thompson is no different. Again, you wouldn't know what to expect out of someone who has recently, you know, been made a dame, this proper British woman and fantastic actress in her own right, and it turns out she was absolutely ready for anything that they were ready to throw at her. But the episode itself, much like a lot of these other episodes, I just feel like didn't really, the writing did not live up to what she was putting out there. That's on number at number 14, I think, mm-hmm. out of 21 on my list. And yeah, this really stinks that for the second year in a row, the season finale is just a wah-wah at the end of the season. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this last season with how the Tina Fey episode was just not very good. And I kind of feel the same way about Paul Rudd as well. And I love Paul Rudd. And again, Paul Rudd, there's a reason why he's been brought back multiple times. He was so game for literally everything, including having Mm -hmm. a recurring character where he just swaps spit with every cast member in Studio 8H. But for some reason, the writing and concept of sketches, with maybe one exception, just were not up there at all for whatever reason. I guess if we're noticing a trend... Maybe it's because this is the third of three shows in a row. That's usually when the writers are running on drags. And not to mention that, you know, it's like a little bit of senioritis, maybe. Again, we don't know who's leaving. We can certainly speculate about that at the end. But I wonder if they're sort of watching the clock, waiting for the bell to ring so they can get out for the summer. And as a result, maybe some sketches that either were half realized or in one case were actually used in a previous week. They just sort of threw them together put it in the oven, and as a result, it was not the best-tasting dish in the world. So yeah, it does feel like the month started off pretty strong, and then we just sort of kept veering downhill, where we sort of ended in a rud rut, if you will, <laughs> uh, where I think Paul Rudd's episode for me falls right in my bottom three with the James McAvoy and Steve Carell episode. See, I would be surprised, if you watch these again, I think the Paul Rudd one might be the worst. Yeah, that's the, it was it by far finishing my worst here. I, I Like, the worst of all of them? Uh, I mean, of the whole season. It's oh, really? I, I'm thinking back to the Steve Carell episode, and there was a couple things in there I did like. I do remember the NASA sketch was kind of mm-hmm. fun. There was nothing I thought was really fun about the Red episode other than uh, Colin Joes to Michael Che reading each other's jokes. But uh. that's not a sketch. That's just a whole different thing. Other than that, I don't think there was anything above average about that episode. Yeah, there was one thing that we can certainly get into. You know, I know we do a lot of compare and contrast, but I feel like to end this season off, it might just be best if we do sort of three mini reviews about these episodes uh, as a whole or one by one, especially because these are very three different quality episodes in our opinion. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to necessarily lump together because we all know if we compare the Adam Sandler episode to the Paul Rudd episode in particular, I think we know which one we prefer at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah. And I will back up what you just said. Like anything I say about SNL not being especially strong has nothing to do with the hosts. I thought Emma Thompson was so good. I thought Paul Rudd was so good. And, you know, they're out there trying their best. And there's only so much you can do when they hand you stuff that just isn't very good. Like, what do you do? Like, okay, yeah, we'll get to that with the other episode. Let's let's talk about Sandler first. Let's let's start with that something happy. Yes, let's start with something happy. Before we start with something happy, though, I do want to start with the cold open just briefly because I am very intrigued to hear from you, Mario. And we heard a little bit from Andrew's perspective last month when Kit Harrington hosted about all the Game of Thrones specificities. And they decided to just keep throwing on top of that with not only Game of Thrones specificities, but Avenger specificities, a huge swerve of a cold open doing a family feud Game of Thrones versus Avengers. Now, as someone who I assume has little to no knowledge about either one of these franchises, 
How did you feel about this, especially as a way to start the show, given how unconventional it was? Well, okay. Obviously, I'm not your typical demographic. I don't watch Game of Thrones. I don't watch the any superhero movies. So I don't really know any of this stuff. But that does not prevent me from enjoying sketches about them. Like, I know there was the one about Migos, that song earlier in the movie about mm. Friendos. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what the source material was, but I thought it was a funny song. I thought that's actually pretty clever. I like that. So if you can pull off a good sketch, even if you don't know the source material, I still think it can work. I just don't think this was a particularly strong sketch. And I'll back that up just by saying this is something we brought up on this show before, these family feud sketches where they just go on and on with the introductions. And they never actually get to the game very much. Yeah, I think we, yeah, we, we got one. We got one question, I think, on this entire yeah. show. And what's funny is in the sketch, they actually joked about that. Uh, Steve Harvey said, you know, uh, we said 45 minutes of introductions, just like the movies, like, like they're even steering to the curve and they know that they do that. And this is something that just as a comedy writer kind of drives me nuts because it's such a improper way of structuring comedy. It's just not very well done. So that was my beef with that. It's just the same old, same old way they improperly set up these family feud sketches. I had no problem with the material. Yeah, I mean, well, considering that the material was just all introductions anyway, it's it's a, a big thing to quibble with. I thought this was, as big fans of both franchises, I thought it was fine. It felt a bit just sort of referency to make references. You know, you had... Alex doing his best Australian accent as Thor. I thought maybe the biggest spectacle of the entire thing was the makeup job they did on Beck Bennett as Thanos, mm-hmm. which was incredible. And I guess I could understand why this might have gotten bumped to the cold open, because I can't imagine what length of time it took to get Beck <laughs> out of that makeup and into that news chair for the Tripoli War Zone sketch. <laughs> and Leslie, I think, got some laughs, too, with like the bitch I'm Groot thing, with the Leslie being Leslie stuff. But outside of that... Not much to write home about, though I will, as always, give SNL kudos for not doing something political and specifically not doing something Trump, because as we'll talk about very much down the line, uh, it's, it's something they will shy away from mostly in the back half of the season, but they'll occasionally dip their toes in the water. <laughs> yeah, this is the faint praise we've come to when it comes to this season of SNL. We're giving them props for not doing a Trump opening, but instead replacing it with a tired old recurring sketch. Good job, SNL. Let's get into this monologue here, because as an SNL historian... Did you ever think in your life you would see Adam Sandler not only come on to host SNL, but do an entire monologue referencing his sordid firing from the show? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually didn't know he'd been fired because in interviews, they'd always said he'd always given the same story that just all of a sudden he wasn't on the show anymore. He's like, all of, no, they didn't really tell me I was fired. He's like, all of a sudden, just I wasn't in the cast. And that was kind of had been his, you know, his statement in interviews. So it was I enjoyed him directly confronting that and just saying flat out that he was fired. Although, like you said earlier, yeah, it's just surreal seeing Adam Sandler on an SNL stage in 2019 with this cast in this season of all people like like I honestly I was talking about this with my brother-in-law before that episode aired and I'm like. I don't know if I have been as interested or excited about an SNL episode in a couple of years because I had no idea what SNL, what Adam Sandler in 2019 was going to look like. And I'm like, is he going to be played by Robert De Niro? Like, is that even him? <laughs> oh, no. Is going to be out there? <laughs> no, he read cue cards. So, you know, that's not Robert De Niro. Yeah. No, I just thought it was really cool. I love this whole monologue. And I even have to say it was a little charming how nervous he was at the start. Yeah, he was kind of like stumbling through the beginning of that monologue. Yeah, although it is... It is one of those things. Adam Sandler, he does the silly voices and the characters, and he's very rarely just himself. And I think that probably threw him off a little bit, just talking, you know, very honestly and earnestly as himself. I don't think he's used to that. So it was it was kind of cute just seeing him stumble. He was having a really hard time. 
Yeah, the interesting thing about the sketch as well is it's very much in the vein of like when you bring a stand-up on where it's very clear the SNL writers did not write this song. You know, this oh, is yeah. pure Sandler, and I loved it. It had that sort of hook to it that comes with some of Sandler's best songs. We get a gratuitous Chris Rock cameo, but it makes <laughs> sense. It's not just, hey, random celebrity shows up to root, to root him on. We have a nice little button reference back to, uh, you know, the modern-day SNL and being a bit meta with Pete coming on and starting mm-hmm. to sing and, and being in disbelief that he actually wasn't fired. And he gets a nice little smile here at the end when he says, I made $4 billion at the box office, so I guess you can say I won. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love that monologue. That was one of my favorites of the season. And I will flat out say I wasn't the biggest Adam Sandler fan when he was on SNL. I, I was hit or mess with him most of the time. Stuff, Some of his stuff was really good. Some of his stuff was not. But I do have to say one thing, and I will be very sincere when I say this, that it has long been said in Hollywood that Adam Sandler is one of the nicest guys. Have you ever heard these stories about him? Oh, yeah, I totally agree that like he just seems I mean, he he does seem like if you're talking about Hollywood, quote unquote, getting to people, it really does seem like he's uh, the exception to that role. Yeah, he's notorious for like people people crap on him. Oh, he just writes these dumb movies and like it's the same stuff over and over and they make so much money. But like. He's notorious for writing parts just for his friends so they have jobs and movies and stuff like that. And all these other comedians have said that over the years, how generous he is. And he's always writing people into the scripts just so he knows they will always be taken care of. So I'm just going to say right off the bat that it's he's a very easy person to root for. And I think it's very uh, disheartening. Before this episode, people would say, oh, I hate him. He's so juvenile. He's, we shouldn't bring this crap back to SNL. Like, you know, it's, I don't think a lot of people know how how what a high reputation most people have of Adam Sandler. So I just wanted to bring that up and say it was, it was very almost emotional in a way to see him have his moment where he came back and he's genuinely one of these really good guys. And he had a night that you could tell meant a lot to him. Yeah. Well, on that note, those attitudes that you were speaking about from other people is one of the reasons why Adam Sandler initially got fired from SNL. From what I recall, wasn't it a thing where like the ratings were super low. And I know they say Saturday night dead every like five years at this rate, but I feel like there was a big stuff about how him and Farley were just pushing it to a really, to your point, juvenile and, you Mm -hmm. know, toilet humor level where just over the summer, Lauren had to essentially clean house a bit just to get rid of the quote unquote problem children that the audiences were really disagreeing with at the time. Yeah. And again, I lived through that era. I was watching that era. That was without question, the worst season of SNL I've ever seen that last the last Sand- Sandler and Farley one. Although I will always say Farley was the bigger problem there. It wasn't so much Sandler. I mean, Sandler was very prolific. He wrote his own stuff. He was very good. It, like A lot of it was similar, but it would still be very well received by the audience. It was the Farley stuff that was really killing the show. So I think Sandler kind of takes a hit for that when it was really more Farley and some of the other people. Speaking of Sandler, but in the meta aspect, let's talk about the Sandler family reunion a bit. And it's been done a couple times before. I remember uh, Christopher Walken when he hosted back in like the early 2010s. There was a there was a sketch like this when Jim Carrey hosted. They did a very similar thing that basically mm-hmm. gives the cast an opportunity to ape some of the actors' most famous characters. But how did you feel about it as sort of a, a representation of what I guess pop culture views Adam Sandler as from the past 20 years? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this one. I will say when it first started, I'm like, we've seen this before. Like, I I don't know why they always do this. But and I remember when I was going along, like I like some of the impressions and there's some I, I thought were really good. Some I didn't think were that strong. The invisible clarinet playing. I have to say this. I have never in my life seen Adam Sandler actually do that move. That is a move that Jimmy Fallon started doing when he imitated yeah, Adam Sandler. On, on Celebrity Jeopardy. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like when uh, George H.W. Bush said, you know, I never said, not nah, gonna die. You know, yeah. it's, it's an exaggeration. 
Yeah, so now everyone's doing an impression of Jimmy Fallon doing Adam Sandler. So anyway, yeah, I thought it was fun the first time, but there's two parts of that sketch that I loved that I thought, oh my God, the normal writers of SNL did not write this. This was too clever. Can you guess which two aspects of that sketch really touched my heart? I think one is going to be the Christian Wig cameo, which will be surprising for you to praise, but specifically the, it's like a reference of a reference with they're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I feel bad. Many people may already know this, but this is what we do. We provide information. That is from Adam Sandler's, I think, first comedy album back believe, in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all going to laugh at you. And he had a random cameo in that of the mom from the movie Carrie. <laughs> Played by Piper Laurie, who would always scream at her daughter when she was going to the prom, you know, when, when she's dressing up and showing her breasts for the first time in a dress. And the mom's like, no, they're all going to laugh at you. And it's really over the top in the movie. And I don't know why Adam Sandler thought he would put that in a comedy sketch 16 years later or whatever, but he did. And it's just a random thing to have in a comedy album. And I don't know why that made it into the Adam Sandler family reunion sketch. Who knows that comedy album? I mean, I know that album because I was in college in 1994. I, this was my, I was the peak audience for that. I know this stuff. I don't know where they got that in 2019 to bring out Kristen Wiig screaming. They're all going to laugh at you. So a lot of people I know didn't get that joke. And I saw on Twitter Reddit, people were saying, you know, she kind of sounds like the mom from the movie Carrie. I'm like, she is the mom from the movie Carrie, just filtered through Adam Sandler's mom from a comedy album 25 years ago. It's just a weirdest reference. I mean, it's also interesting the cameos that we had in that sketch alone. Because I guess Jimmy Fallon does make sense because, like you said, Jimmy did do Adam a couple times. But what the hell is this connection between Adam and Kristen Wiig? Like, did, is this something where they are friends off the show and she decided to come on? Like, their their time did not overlap whatsoever on SNL. As we said, Sandler made a few cameos, but it's not hosted. He wouldn't have hosted when she was on the show. This just seems like the most random, let's pull two names out of a hat of SNL cast members and have them come cameo on each other's shows. I heard what happened is she saved his life in Vietnam, so he oh, owed her a wow. favor. Oh, <laughs> wow. That totally makes sense now. But, okay, but the second part of that... Sandler family reunion sketch. There was another wonderfully obscure reference in there that didn't need to be in there. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I mean, it might, mine at least, I don't know if ours is the same one, but I will say for all the the guff we give Pete Davidson's acting ability, he does a pretty damn good little Nicky, I gotta say. Yeah, no, I agree. That's not what I'm talking about, but I thought that was solid. I I really love Chubbs Peterson. I love Leslie showing up as Chubbs, of all people, which was, that was a really good impression. She looked just like him. Yeah, that was like very surprising. It was a little weird because she was the only one not doing a, uh, not doing a Sandler character impression, but I'm glad they sort of skipped outside of that because again, there's only a limited amount of characters that Adam Sandler does and they sort of covered the breadth of them with what everyone else was doing. So yeah, throwing some other random characters in there like Chubbs, who does appear in technically two Adam Sandler films. Yeah. Okay. But the line that really won me over was the one at the very end with Sean Mendez. Mm, was it the stop, la- stop laughing at me, Sean? Stop looking at me, Sean. Yeah, you know what that's from, right? You need to jog my memory because I honestly can't remember at this moment. That is my favorite line in Billy Madison, where Billy Madison is a ridiculous movie, but it always makes me laugh. I don't know why it does. It's just a really funny movie. And, you know, Billy Madison is the the man child who lives at home and basically, uh, I 
don't want to say the R word because I'll use that later in the episode, but he's he's perhaps got some mental issues. And there's one scene in the movie where he's in the bathtub. The shampoo versus conditioner. Yeah, yeah. shampoo. Shampoo makes the hair clean. I keep it silky where he's fighting between shampoo and conditioner. Mm -hmm. And then Adam Sandler just turns at the end of the scene and looks at there's a little swan faucet. And he just says, stop looking at me, swan. Oh, that's what that is. It's (laughs) such an obscure reference. And I love that someone took the time to pull that line out of that movie and throw it into the sketch where Adam Sandler, that was the only reason Sean Mendez is in there so they can get to that joke. (laughs) He says, stop looking at me, Sean. So that is a joke that is so near to my heart as a comedy writer. I could not believe someone got that onto SNL in 2019. Oh my God. So Easter eggs upon Easter eggs that come with this Adam Sandler treasure hunt. It's given me even yeah. more appreciation for it because that's an even deeper dig than the other times that they've done this sketch with other actors. Like you said, they took a lot of care, whoever wrote this, into digging up some of the most obscure Adam Sandler references, and it shows. Yeah, and again, so a lot of people don't like Adam Sandler. I grew up in the 90s. I was a college student between 93 and 96. I am right there in the sweet spot of of Adam Sandler fans. He came to my college, Santa Clara University. He came and did a live concert in 94. I got to see him do the Thanksgiving song for the first time. I got to see him do all this stuff. So, like, I know all these jokes. I know all these references. It was, I understand maybe it's not the biggest, biggest deal to younger people, but it was really special seeing him on there at this point. Let's talk about actually one of my favorite sketches, uh, as much as we lavish praise onto that. Something about that Romano tour sketch. I just <laughs> loved. And it really did feel like maybe it was out of a different era because it was so, I'm going to say surreal. And this was one of those things that you were actually just speaking about where with the cold open, where this is actually based on a famous commercial, but uh-huh. it's done in such a way that it can almost be viewed at in its own little bubble and still be accepted as funny with this premise that this vacation you know, company promises a lavish Italian extravaganza, but we do not promise that it will improve your sadness in any way, shape, or form. Yes. If you're sad there, you're still going to be sad in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I will give the highest compliment to that sketch. I'm not entirely sure who wrote that one, but like it started, that sketch started, and I'm like, okay, this is just going to be some dumb tour thing. And it started getting really dark and meta and weird and fourth dimensional and twisted. And I'm like, did Robert Smigel write this sketch? Because it didn't feel like it belonged in this era of SNL. To me, it felt like, like this is something that it felt like would have been on like Conan O'Brien's old show back on mm-hmm. Late Night. And like, I know Smigel wrote for that. So I ended up being that Smigel did not write this sketch, but I was so convinced he did because it was so much different than most SNL humor of this era. I just, I could not have loved it more. It was so fun. I also loved how on top of that theming, his character was also like pretty aloof to everything. He's like, yeah, do this. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Or, uh, you know, the, the fact that they went into, like you said, they took this big steer into the depression route to the point where they put in all these graphics of like taking people out of their homes and putting them in Italy and showing like the graphs of happiness and sadness rising and falling. It was a really weird take on it, but because of the fact that they doubled down on it, it made it twice as funny and one of the highlights of the episode, in my opinion. Yeah, and you got to give Adam Sandler some credit in that one because that's a funny sketch and it probably would work with most hosts, but I'm not sure if Emma Thompson pulls off that sketch as well as Adam Sandler. Mm. Just something about the way he sold it. Although there's one little line in there that just jumped out at me where, where I forget if it's like he says, uh, if you don't look good in pictures now, you won't look good in pictures then. And I think he says, remember, you're not your sister. I think it was something like that. It's just a little random joke. So, but again, I, you got to give Adam Sandler a lot of credit for selling those jokes. I think he really was very good in that one. 
Well, another one that I think you did a fantastic job and was one of the pre-tapes from this episode, the aforementioned Rectix commercial, because that's another one that took a really fun turn where I, I think, honestly, once Beck said, so it's a butt plug, it just completely landed and just they just kept going from there to this really fantastic ending of them saying it's dishwasher safe, cut to Beck swatting the glass out of Heidi's head when, he, when she walks in with it. It was just a really... Well done commercial, performed well across the board, including Sandler, who did a great job of doing that sort of doting dad from those commercials that you always see. But he's actually talking about a butt plug the entire time. Yeah. And we got to give a shout out to 80 in that one for the line. uh, It vibrates. What? You thought that it wouldn't? (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, them talking about what, you know, the story behind it and said, and I said, what is this? A pill or something? And I said, sure. <laughs> yeah, no that again this there's just a huge stretch of really funny stuff in this Sandler episode and we're right in the middle here. Yeah, this was just I loved Rectix, I love Romano tours, the Sandler family reunion. These were back to back to back. Like SNL this season would kill to have three sketches that good all in a row. Yeah, and we climbed out of that hole considering that holes was the thing that happened before Romano tours and I don't want to necessarily mention it because it was a very, very rare misfire from Good Neighbor and arguably, in my opinion, maybe one of the worst sketches of the season. But I guess when yeah. you have Sandler shred a guitar solo, you have to keep it in there, I suppose. <laughs> well, OK, we're, we're skipping over. They had the CNN, the, the Snapchat filter sketch, which was silly, but it wins you over because it was still it kept going. Yeah, and this is also an opportunity for Sandler to do his like very vague Eastern European accent that he does in a lot of things, uh, as, as he played the Tripoli soldier. Uh, but I thought it was it was a fun concept at first. You could tell this was a uh, a Mikey Day Streeter Seidel piece, though, because it's yeah. like here's Mikey having something dumb to him, and he just sort of has to stand there and take it the entire time. Yeah, although now again, you may be too young for this. Like when Adam Sandler does that vaguely Middle Eastern accent, I know that voice is something else. What do you know that voice as? I know that voice as, I mean, the most recent thing I think of is like, you don't mess with the Zohan. Uh, yeah. That's the probably the biggest one. I mean, he also sort of copying the accent that Rob Schneider does in his movies of the you can do it guy. Yeah. All right. On Adam, Adam Sandler's first comedy album back in the 90s was, uh, I, I always forget the names of the albums. Then he had the second one, which is the one that I think was the funnier of the two albums. I think it's called What the Hell Happened to Me. In that one, there's a comedy sketch called The Goat. Mm. which is one of the funniest things I have ever heard in my life. And it, like when I was in college, that was my go-to thing to quote. And that's the voice he's doing. He's doing the voice of the, the goat with a vaguely Cajun accent. Oh, it's Cajun. I don't know. My, my brother used to say this when he was in college. He's like, he, t- he goes, I took French class in college. And I didn't really know how to speak with a French accent. So I would just imitate Adam Sandler doing the goat and pretend I was Cajun. And the teacher always said that was cool. <laughs> so wow. I, I think, think it's vaguely Cajun. Like that's, Adam, that's a very distinct Adam Sandler voice. That's the goat. If there are any students out there, we just provided a life hack for you to get through French class, barely yeah. passing. And I should point out my brother is a, an esteemed federal judge now. So that was a good life hack. It worked out at Dartmouth. Yeah, that's the path that's going to work out for everybody if they try that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Adam Sandler characters, what do you think about the return of Opera Man here? Do we feel like Opera Man is timeless as they try to prove here? You know, he was never my favorite back in the 90s when I was you know, in college. I was like, oh, he's, just, he's just one of many Adam Sandler characters. Fill in the blank man. There was Cajun mm-hmm. man. There was opera man. There was, you know, spoon for an arm man. Yeah, basically, basically it's it's like the waking up the thing where he was coming up with Halloween costumes off the fly, but just with characters instead of Halloween costumes. Yeah. And what's funny is, I don't know if a lot of people say this, if you read the live from New York book where Jim Downey and Robert Smigel would just, you know, wax nostalgic about Adam Sandler and say how good he was at writing comedy. And they would say, 
you know, people think Adam Sandler's dumb, but what he's doing is he's deconstructing comedy. He's taking it down to its stupidest basic level and proving that you can get a joke even with not even putting any thought into it, which that might be a little generous. <laughs> yeah, That's might, the argument might, with Adam Sandler. Might be giving him a bit too much headiness when it comes to breaking down his comedy. I think he's yeah. just like, I'm going to put a spoon in my hand and I'm going to make a character out of it. I mean, kudos to a guy who can pull that off. Not many people can pull that off and make people laugh, but he could. But again, who am I to argue with Jim Downey and Robert Smichael and say that Robert that uh, Adam Sandler's really good at writing sketch comedy? Again, they say he was. But yeah, Opera Man was just one of many characters he had. He never really stood out to me. But I was shocked how emotional and nostalgic it was seeing up, him up there on that desk again. And I will say this about Adam Sandler, that he's like Dana Carvey. They just sort of have a general charisma about them and they can mm-hmm. make almost anything likable and funny because they're kind of likable and that's really opera man like there was there was some good writing in there i heard that robert smigel wrote that so clearly that was you could see the hand of different writers this week but it's all adam sandler just attitude and charisma selling that stuff and you just have to give him credit i think and it's also the silliness that like he has this weird like phantom of the opera wig on and he's just waving this white handkerchief around and it's a, an absolutely ridiculous image but he honestly sells it because he's so goofy the entire time. And there were a couple of fun jokes in there. The Kentucky Derby thing with losing horses, delicioso. We're talking about him poking hit fun in his movie career where he talks about, you know, hey, uh, an attractive woman ends up with an unattractive schlubby guy. Where have I seen that before? Cut to four pictures from his films. Uh, talking about how it's been 24 years and he's gained 24 pounds. And then some Trump jokes in there that, you know, we've heard before, but... Opera Man at least delivers it with panache, so I can't quibble too much. I agree that he was never my favorite character, but it was always fun to see him just because it's a stupid concept, and he does it in a stupid way that makes for really a lot of fun. He does, and again, you get you have to give him credit for his little facial expressions. Like, Adam Adam Sandler, clearly not like a, a world-class actor, but like he can emote and act when he has to. And he always brings his A-game up when it comes to Opera Man because he's so over the top with some of his little facial expressions. And mm-hmm. I just I just love that about him. And I'm pleased to see as a member of the younger generation that you appreciate Opera Man as well. But I will flat out say he was never Adam's biggest character. That was just one of many characters. He was a little side character that would pop up an update once in a while. He was not the one that I thought would come back this season. So it, like it was not there was not like this huge demand to see Opera Man. This, this was just one of the guys he played. Who did you think was going to come back then if you were sort of to rate your Adam Sandler characters and their chance of returning? Ah, well, this is interesting. I, I hadn't thought about this question. I mean, I guess I think if they had had Sandler, if they had had a, a Trump cold open, I wonder if it would have seen if we know I know we referenced Canteen Boy in the monologue, but I wonder if mm-hmm. they would have outright made some sort of weird take on it, even if it wasn't an entire Canteen Boy sketch. Yeah, no, he was the one that I was thinking of. Although, if I if I recall... Adam Sandler didn't have a lot of really distinct characters. I always kind of, I always kind of compare him in the Dana Carvey. He's like a, it's attitude comedy where it's really just Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's lots of different characters, but they weren't distinct characters. Like, you know, Mike Myers had Wayne Campbell. Like the closest Adam Sandler ever had to that was the Denise show, mm. which was not a really distinct one, but it's like, that's maybe they would have done something like that. That's what I was thinking. Well, the interesting thing, and this will actually segue nicely into what I want to talk about next is a lot of his characters were also very much partnered against Chris Farley. Like you have mm. the gap girls, you have the Zagat couple. And when one half of that equation is missing, it's a little tough to sort of resuscitate that partnership, yeah. which brings me to, and I would say this is probably the biggest moment of all three episodes, if not the entire season. I saw people who don't even watch SNL anymore, you know, tweeting this out, posting this out the next day, 
What did you think, again, especially given, you know, the history of them on SNL, what did you think about the way Sandler ended the show with that Chris Farley tribute? Okay, I got three things to say about that. They're probably going to surprise you, actually. The first one is what you just said earlier, that Adam Sandler was usually paired up with Chris Farley. They were a team a lot of the time. And I think that's kind of been lost to history because when Chris Farley started doing movies, it was with David Spade. Spade. Yeah, but but Farley and Spade were not really a thing on SNL. It was always Farley and Sandler. So it's it's always interesting that history remembers David Spade and Chris Farley being a comedy team when it really was much more Sandler and Farley. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that. The second one is I had never seen the Netflix special that Sandler did this song on, so I'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. So it was all new to me. So it was really fascinating to see it and see how he talked about it and seeing which clips he used. And the third thing about that is I actually wasn't really a, as big a fan of that as most other people were. Hmm. But I will tell you why that is, because I lived through the Chris Farley era and I remember the last year or two how intolerable he was and how he basically <laughs> torpedoed the show like I'm not quite as nostalgic about Chris Farley as people maybe who never saw him live are. Right. Yeah. So like to you, this is like this big deal. He's singing a song to his buddy. Oh, Chris Farley, the greatest, you know, person on SNL ever, blah, blah, blah. To me, it's like, you know, I loved Chris Farley at the time, but he died like what, 20 years ago. Like I, I'm not, I wasn't as moved by that as other people would be. And I'm not saying it was a bad sketch or it didn't belong in SNL. I wasn't really the target demographic for that. I'm like, well, I personally would have preferred to see another Adam Sandler comedy piece there. But who am I? I'm just one opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting as well, sort of, I guess, comparing the way that we perceive Chris Farley. I mean, the way I saw him in the 90s was I, that was sort of my formative years. And that's, you know, when I was barely receiving SNL tidbits via osmosis back then, the thing that I had heard was like, oh, Chris Farley, he's the big, fat, funny guy. I'm a nine-year-old. I love big, fat, funny guys. He even made an appearance on all that, actually, in a sketch with Kenan Thompson. I guess passed down that good SNL juju to them, uh, <laughs> where it was obviously a big deal when he died. So it's interesting to learn, like you said, that at the time, again, he was so, you know, ill-regarded, especially near the end of his yeah. tenure, that it caused him to get fired alongside Sandler. And I do think it was also a thing where him dying so young, I think, might have changed people's opinions yeah. on his career. And But what I will say is, I think what sold this, in my opinion, because I really love this, if only just to watch Sandler's reactions to it, just because you could tell, like his monologue, it was tough for him to get through, but maybe for different reasons. Uh, you know, yeah. it was it was really heartbreaking to watch him talk about the last time he saw them was at Tim Meadows wedding. The sort of disparity between him crying, thinking about his dad versus his dad's turn to cry at his funeral. Like those really hit you in the feels. And so I feel like I feel like it was a special moment for Adam Sandler to come onto the stage that, to your point, he shared so fondly with his friend to commemorate his friend the first time he's ever come back as a host. I think that's just something really special and you could tell the cast was just like, because the good nights were right after it. The cast was just yeah. completely inconsolable besides themselves. They were wrapped up in it. And so I thought it was a really beautiful, not necessarily a funny way to end the, to end the episode, but I thought it was a really strong way to both acknowledge its history and to sort of say, okay, we're going to move forward, you know, with this new cast into the wild blue yonder that is the Emma Thompson episode. Yeah, no, it's that that was a very special moment to a lot of people. I'm not going to sit here and say they shouldn't have put it on the show. So that was clearly a neat moment. It touched a lot of people. And again, a lot of the SNL cast members are younger than me. Mm -hmm. So they would be more like you. They only remember like the the fond stuff of Chris Farley. But yeah, it's it's really interesting if you live through that era, the different opinion you might have of that. Right. Let's move into the Emma Thompson episode. We go back to the political stuff for the cold open 
though it's Trumpless, it felt like, you know, a little repetitive. They were obviously trying to beat in this joke to the ground of, hey, here are three Republicans that will refuse to disavow Trump no matter what it was. I thought it was, you know, fine. I think it was an ability for people to trot out their impressions. I think by far the best part was Cecily as Susan Collins uh, just being so indecisive and meek. But I would say replacement level cold open, especially compared to, again, what we're about to talk about next episode. Yeah, I mean, this is typical of 2019 SNL political commentary. This is the stuff they do has all the nuance of like a hammer, a blunt (laughs) hammer. Like there's like there's no Jim Downey doing very clever political, you know, topical SNL stuff. And I will there's a French word I would like to use here that this is how SNL, when they have a Republican character on the show, it's there's a word in the French language. It means slow. I believe it's retardé that you just make the characters on retard. And that is basically your commentary that anybody who's a Republican is just straight up special needs. And that's what they do. So that's kind of my beef with SNL's political writing. Like you could be a little more clever than that, but that tends to be what they do. They all just basically have a speech impediment and say, Durr, and that's the whole sketch. Now, I couldn't tell if that was French because you didn't say it in a Cajun accent. Yes, exactly. En retard. There we go. Now I understand perfectly. And it's okay. You can use that word. It means slow. En retard is a French word. It means slow. So it's cool. Moving into the monologue. So we talked about some SNL cameos from alumni in the Chris Rock cameo from the Adam Sandler episode. This one felt a bit more of what we usually get with Amy and Tina Fey rooting Emma Thompson on during the Mother's Day episode. Any thoughts about this cameo crashing monologue? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't really like when they crash it with cameos, but this was the Mother's Day episode and Tina and Amy are very well regarded mothers. So it made sense. And I like I didn't like it at first, but they kind of won me over by the end. I thought it was very clever, the wordplay. And I thought Emma Thompson, uh, Tina and Amy very played off each other very well, setting yeah. up each other's punchlines. So I, you know, I have to tip my cap. It was three pros out there doing a good job. It was a good monologue, especially if this is the typical parlance of SNL where the monologue is usually the last thing to write. There was so much back and forth going on between the three of them that it really flowed masterfully even if the writing was not exactly the funniest thing in the world it ended on at least a, a good note with splendid meeting so many things and her calling it essentially the british aloha yeah i actually did not know that emma thompson had a sketch comedy background like i yes. knew she was a very well acclaimed actress and she'd done like she'd done some comedies i don't know if people remember she was in an arnold schwarzenegger danny devito movie junior way back in the 90s like she's done lots of comedies but I did not know she actually had stage training and that kind of stuff. She She's really good. Like, I was actually kind of shocked how good she was at SNL. Yeah, I believe it was the, the Hugh Laurie Stephen Fry she was working with back in the day, I think. Yeah, I mean, she is legitimately really talented. One of the most talented people I've ever seen on the show. So as we're going to go through this episode, just realize how disappointing it is, some of the material they were handing to her. Well, this actually coming up might be my favorite thing that she did just because it's so aggressive and physical which is like the exact opposite of when you think emma thompson but this this like royal baby visit where essentially you know she plays mrs vivian hargrave the royal etiquette coach and we learn how to (laughs) stir tea and break up scones uh much to the unfortunate i guess uh damage physically to poor leslie I love this sketch. I love the sketch as much as pretty much anything in the Adam Sandler episode, even. I yeah, think it's I so well done. And I was watching it today and just laughing. It was so good. And Emma Thompson, just pure straight violence with that <laughs> British accent to the point that she starts smashing chairs over Leslie's head like a WWE wrestler. I love this. This was so well done. And of course, I will damn it with faint praise by saying, 
Emma Thompson is so good, she can make a Leslie Jones sketch funny. Oh, I think Leslie had a good... She was pretty solid as the straight person to this, but even there was like a weird earworminess to it, where even after the sketch, I was singing back and forth, 6 to 12. <laughs> but I did love the two of them parroting back and forth together, you know, Leslie in her own vernacular. But yeah, then it just got... This is when SNL can almost be at its craziest and therefore its <laughs> finest. It's just when you have her shoving her face in clotted cream, like you said, smashing chairs on her back. It's just ridiculously over the top. It's another take on, you know, when they did the uh, the royal wedding sketch from the early 2000s, where maybe it was Anne Hathaway? I'm not sure, where it was uh, uh, Bill yeah, Hader and Fred Armisen playing, like, the, the royal couple, like the king and queen, and then as soon as, you know, they're alone with her, they turn into, like, these crash uh, <laughs> cockney people. Like, that, it yes. felt very much in that similar vein. It was great. I love the introduction of violence into a sketch when it doesn't need to be there, and the fact that it was Emma Thompson. That, again, so well done, although you're aware that sketch kind of led to some controversy on the internet, right? Is it because they felt that Leslie's character was a caricature? Yeah, because can black people just not know etiquette? Is that the joke that led that you got to throw a black? Like, <laughs> I hate to bring back an earlier sketch from earlier in this SNL season, but it's very topical here. Uh, the Idris Elba sketch. Can I play that? <laughs> can Leslie Jones play someone who does not know royal etiquette and needs to be hit with a chair? Can I play that? She's like, yes, I can. And the Internet's like, no, because you're a black woman and now it's offensive. Yeah. So I love that sketch. I loved everything about it. I thought Leslie was very good. And I thought Emma was good. In it, and I thought it was absolutely laughable that people had to write magazine think pieces over how offended they were over a really funny SNL sketch. Let's take a dip into the past here. This perfect mother sketch is not exactly completely a retread, but we have done this format a lot, even most recently with the Matt Damon Christmas episode of, hey, here they're talking about a holiday, an event in the present, and then we flash back to them essentially saying, doing the exact opposite of how things went. We even saw this last year with Amy Schumer, which might have been the best rendition of this, uh, The Day You Were Born, which, now that I have a young son, that sketch makes complete sense to me, <laughs> and then some. Uh, what, what did you think about it this time around? Well, yeah, see, here's the problem. Emma Thompson was fantastic in that. I, I've never seen pantsless Emma Thompson going out and taking her garbage out and yelling at the neighbor. <laughs> Heidi was very good in that. Uh, Mikey was good in that. But we've seen it before. That's the problem. You saw every beat coming. And I appreciate they got to put these onto Mother's Day retrospectives later in the future, and it'll show up. It mm. This will be fondly remembered. But like someone who watches the show week in and week out and does recaps, we've seen this before. There was nothing new in there. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is that as soon as you saw them settle in, I don't know if it was just the way they were filming it or the fact it was Mother's Day. And I'm like, OK, it's going to be another one of those things. And not to say it wasn't entertaining. Like you said, I mean, this is less so about birth and this is more so about, I guess, managing a toddler. So I guess I have that to look forward to. Maybe I, I was also affected by the fact that I was watching this with my wife who had just given birth to our son the week before. And this very much triggered her. So I was like, oh, but I think, like you said, it was performances well done. It just feels like a concept that has been done so much before that it, it lacks the, the surprise that that first one or even the Matt Damon Christmas one did. And as a result, it sort of loses its comedic punch. Yeah. Although I will say, Mike, you know, uh, people don't know, Mike and his wife just gave birth to a baby. They have a little three week old or something mm -hmm. in the house. So just remember when your baby blows out the diaper and the crap comes flying out the side and in your hair one day, these are the days you'll remember as being awesome. Perfect. I will have your voice in my head saying those exact words as I shower poop out of my hair. <laughs> yes, that is your future, Mike Bloom. As Speaking as someone who has a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old, I laugh at those days and how long ago they were. Salad days, but don't get anything near the salad. 
<laughs> yes. uh, let, let's move into cinema classics here because this is a, another sketch that we've seen before, but this one's a little bit different. It was weird to me that not only did Keenan say what the game of the sketch was at the very top, but they literally mentioned it in the sketch itself. This is another one that I thought was fun enough. I think Emma and Kate bounced really well off of each other, but I don't know. I felt like we were really underlining what was funny about the sketch, and as a result, it didn't feel exactly subtle. Yeah, I know. This one just didn't do it for me, and it's it's every so often, you know, Kate McKinnon laps into some bad habits when they start featuring her in sketches like this. It's the Kristen Wiig thing again, where they just kind of start hamming it up, and this one just didn't work for me, and maybe that's why, because like you said, they spell out what the joke is going to be, and then they do the joke, and then they reference what the joke is, and they keep doing the joke, and I'm like, you know, I would like to see Emma Thompson a little smarter material than that, but I mean, they were having fun. It just didn't do much for me. Speaking of Chris and Wade, there was a point where it felt like they were getting a bit Garth and Kath-esque, where like yeah. one person would say something, and then I think Kate would try to like say the exact thing at the same time. So when you're invoking that, it's not the strongest thing in the world. But let's move into a pre-tape here, because yet again, this is something that contains the DNA of a previous sketch from <laughs> this season. So we have this chopped, you know, uh, I guess, sequence of events. And I had no idea where this was going. But Mario, is this the spiritual successor to House Hunters from our beloved Lee of Schreiber episode? Yeah, it, I mean, it's the same sketch, basically. Whoever wrote one had to have a hand in writing the other one. Although, I would like to pose a question to you, Mr. Bloom. Okay. Did you like this chopped one? It's tough because I didn't didn't like it nearly as much as I did the House Hunters one. That was another one where, much like the day you were born, the fun of the the surprise of just how insane these details are going to get just really it brings you joy and produces, in my opinion, one of the best sketches of the season. Where once I know where it was going, you're like, okay, let's see how many lol random things can come out of this. I also feel like maybe putting those types of details in this type of reality show rather than the House Hunters one was a little bit like fitting a square peg into a round hole where there were some fun things like silly puns, like the overdressed salad, uh, the raw steak that kept, you know, mm. using the C word uh, and the stuff like, uh, you know, the div- serving of divorce papers that give you full, full custody of the kid. And by that, they mean baby goat. This one, I guess, felt more punny, whereas the other one felt more absurd. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I've been thinking about this one today because I watched this sketch specifically today because I wanted to know why House Hunters works and why the chopped one I, I think doesn't work. Mm. And I'm trying to put my finger on it because like, even today I watched the chopped one again and I think I liked it even less than I liked it the first time. And I'm not sure why. Like It felt a little try-hardy, mm. especially the salad dressed up in the tuxedo. Like That one, that joke seemed a little hacky to me. And I don't know if the House Hunters one would have had that one. The House Hunters one felt very clever and just you had no idea where it was going, but the jokes would make sense in a way. And this one felt a little more juvenile. So, yeah, there's just something about like I like the idea of the sketch. I just didn't think this chopped one worked as well as House Hunters. And it it bugs me because I cannot put my finger on why. And I usually can. So I don't know why. That's why I asked you. Well, I wonder if the structure might have had, uh, you know, a problem with it as well. Because the house hunters thing, they kept going from place to place. And so they were able to really escalate ah. things. This one was, okay, we'll start with the first course and then the second course and the third course. There really wasn't a lot of escalation here, in my opinion. It was just more so things got random and they stayed random. There wasn't anything that was as insane as, you know, toilet on the ceiling by the end of it. Yeah, I mean, maybe just... The concept of a kitten in a bun is just not inherently all that funny. That's kind of a childish joke. The idea of an invisible house 
in the middle of a meadow maybe is a little more cerebral. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you. But yeah, this it just didn't do it for me. And again, it absolutely the spiritual successor to one of my top 10 sketches of the season. But I don't know why this one just didn't do it for me. I couldn't tell you. So the next sketch did it for me. And I'm, maybe that's another one. I'm sort of taking the hat from you because I can't understand why I liked Judge Court as much as I did. <laughs> maybe it's because of this ridiculous concept of like, you know, they start the sketch by essentially sentencing a, a 30 year old uh, land, a 30 year old, uh, you know, owner of property to jail just because he's too young. I think maybe just because it was so ridiculously absurd and the dynamic. One thing I'll say about Emma Thompson is she just has great chemistry with so many of these cast members. I thought her, Cecily, and AD just worked so well together, bouncing off each other. It really did feel like they would suck hard candy out of each other's asses if they were choking. <laughs> well, you know, we're like Siskel and Ebert. We tend to disagree on stuff, and that's part of our our, our sexual chemistry, Mike. We're always fighting, and people mm-hmm. wonder if we're actually in love with each other. I actually agree with you on something about this sketch. What's that? I also don't know why you liked it. Ah! <laughs> You got me. <laughs> I got gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. This one just seemed loud and people talking over each other and like it was random just to be random. Like it felt it, almost in a way like the chopped one before it. They're going for jokes that are obscure and random and they're just throwing as many weird things. But like the the pace was kind of frantic and frenetic. It was just a little too much going on and all talking over each other. I don't know. This one just didn't do it for me either. And it's possible this one might have done it for me if the show had had a little more momentum up to this point, if I was mm-hmm. willing to give it a little more of a chance. But like, I could already see this episode was not going to be a standout like the Sandler one, so I was not probably as invested in this one as I might have been. But yeah, this one just didn't really resonate with me. I actually have seen it twice now, and I don't remember anything about it. Let's get into Weekend Update for a hot second, because we have two returning correspondents here. Any thoughts about the return of teen movie critic Bailey Gizmert, played by Heidi Gardner, or... Pete Davidson doing his last update appearance of the season and bringing on his lovely mother, Amy. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm a huge Heidi fan. I say that every week. I, I'm still not entirely sure how she is going to fit into SNL and if she becomes one of the major female stars. I'm not sure, but I love when she gets into character. Bailey Gizmert is my personal favorite Heidi mm, character. So I agree. I will always love her. She's so much fun. I just love the little mannerisms she does. She, she added one in this one where she was like, she was denying something and she was like mouthing no and looking off to the left when Michael Che was saying something. And she's like, she looked like a crazy person, like just little details she does. So I love Bailey. I think everything she does is funny. But that being said, the Pete one was just as funny. I thought it was yeah. really good. Yeah, I think that, you know, this was this has been the season of Pete Davidson's personal life. And now that we know that post Ariana Grande and I guess mid Kate Beckinsale, he still lives with his mother and you could tell that she was super nervous, but I think she did a, a fun job with the lines that they gave her. And then Pete, of course, does Pete at the end with like, you know, what are you doing for her tomorrow? Like, I'm not doing anything. I just put her on TV uh, or, you know, you'll sell for a Ninja Turtle. I just need a dad. But going back to Bailey for a second, I mean, I love how they elevated her crushy concepts to the point where they it's clear that she's attracted to Detective Pikachu, which is just completely <laughs> ridiculous. But I think my my favorite part was the weird minutia of her talking about how uh, the senior walkout ended early because one girl basically stepped through a crack in the bleachers. She's not dead, but she's not going to college. <laughs> I, that is fantastic. I, does she write her own stuff? I would imagine <laughs> so. Uh, I mean, I think this would probably be, I don't know if this was a Groundlings character that she did, but I, I, you have to feel like she, this is just too natural for her to not write it, right? Yeah, uh, it's, 
Yeah, my wife does not like Heidi Gardner, and it bothers me. <laughs> like, like, how? Like, she's like, well, they're all the same. They're all these neurotic, these nerdy little girls. They have a mental breakdown right there. I'm like, it is, but it, like, it, it, I don't know. It's we're never going to agree on this one, and it, it may cause problems <laughs> in our marriage, honestly. But yeah, I just I I loved everything about that, and the line about that that Pete said. Pete again is so naturally funny when he's just being himself. The line there where his sister is living at home now, so like when a skeezy guy comes around the house, he can never tell if it's some dude trying to hit on. His sister or some dude about to whisk his mother away and, <laughs> and whisk him into adult dreamland. Like, I love that line. That was such a good line. Speaking of marriages and disarray, any thoughts about this Beauty and the Beast interpretation that we saw? I, I mean, that was a mess. I was, that was ridiculous and it went on forever. I mean, was there, was there anything I'm missing about that sketch? Was it really like secretly funny and I just missed it somehow? The only thing that was funny that the SNL Reddit noticed was that at one point Emma Thompson realized that she, she had the wrong arm up. She did not know which was her handle and which was her spout. And so yeah. she tried to switch it halfway through and then just said F it and just go back to what it was being incorrect. Yeah, this was a weird sketch because there were two premises. It starts by saying, hey, the beast, you know, likes to work out. And let's see what happens when these weights come to life. But then it veers into this weird territory where the teapot had sex with the beast. Like, it was just got super strange. You could tell they didn't know how to end it. So they just completely went blue because of it. But yeah, really nothing to say about this one. This is this is probably one of the weakest ones. Uh, really, really weak post update stretch, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, this. Yeah, there was nothing going on in this sketch. But I was watching it really closely today. And I'm like. You know, Cecily's out there trying her best to sell this dumb sketch. And Keenan's out there doing his best. And Emma was doing her best. And it just doesn't work. And that's where I feel bad for these performers that are really, there's some very good performers on the show. And they have to know this sketch sucks. Like, mm. you know, that. I mean, you've done sketch comedy, right? You have to know when the material's not good. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of which, actually, we saw a highlight of a very new cast member. This was Ego Nuotum's, like, coming out party in the second to last episode of this season with this Tracy talk show, Millennials Gone Bad, where essentially the concept is she keeps saying, you don't know me, but it turns out the audience knows her much more than she thinks she does. I thought it was a clever concept. It was a bit repetitive. Uh, you know, I thought Emma coming out there was a fun cameo, but I thought it was an okay way to end the show. Much better than if they ended on Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I mean, I know people want Ego to happen, and I'm more than happy to root for her if, you know, she's, <laughs> if she's going to be a star one day. But there was nothing special about this sketch. This is like something you would have seen Sherry O'Terry do 20 mm. minutes before the end of an episode back in the 90s. I've seen, you've seen sketches like this before. So, like, I'm glad she got some appearance, but there was nothing in this that was anything outstanding. It was pretty, again, just same old kind of disappointing aim low stuff that SNL tends to aim for these days. Do you think they should let go of Ego in the interim period no i mean i've seen no evidence that she can't do snl in fact i have a couple candidates i would love for them to get rid of, of, of ahead of her <laughs> yeah we'll say we'll say that for the end because i, I want to <laughs> yeah. see your short list here no i have no problem with ego I, I would love to see her get a chance to really be a part of the cast like in these you know straight woman roles where there's someone you know leading a, a sketch like cecily in the beauty and the beast one Put Ego in there. Let her go out there and be the straight woman and do all the dialogue in a sketch. Like, she could do that, too. So that's the thing. She just has not had a chance. I have no opinion on her either way at this point because I, I have no idea what she can do. All right. Let's get into Paul Rudd here. Wait a minute. Wait. You skipped the last sketch. Oh, yeah. The continuity one. I, I didn't watch it the first time because it wasn't on Hulu, so I had to catch it online. What were your thoughts about the continuity sketch? Yeah, it sucked. I don't even know why you wanted to bring it up. Why? Why would you bring this up, Mike? It was dumb. I was uh, it's because the brands. I I have brand loyalty. The sponsors are gonna poke me in the back if I don't mention it. Yeah, I mean that was 
that was like a little a, a sketch you'd write for little kids. It was so stupid. Like, I mean, there's stuff. There's always a place for stuff like that in SNL, but there was nothing outstanding in that sketch. And I'm like, you have Emma Thompson on your show, and this is the kind of material you have her doing. Like, and, I don't know. That's my opinion. Well, this was also one of the ones where, like, oh, because they want to reference the Starbucks cups on Game of Thrones, I got to do something quick. So I don't know exactly if they were allowing it to stew a bit in the writers' room. They just sort of popped it out there, and as a result, it didn't exactly taste fantastic. I realize I'm making a lot of food references to these sketches maybe i've been watching too much chopped i mean for people who know my survivor writing i don't i don't talk about it much we i do a lot of stuff on the tv show survivor if like that sketch had been an an entry on the funny 115 i would have been embarrassed by it (laughs) it's a good barometer (laughs) right there i i would not have done that i'm like you know what i probably don't want to publish this under my name well thank you for delaying the inevitable but we have to talk about this Trump don't stop me now cold open. Hopefully we won't spend too much time on it because, God, I mean, compare this even to last year, which I guess was more ambitious in bringing out, you know, everyone in Trump's cabinet to sing what I did for Trump. This was just lifeless. It was five people sitting on a desk staring to the camera singing and singing and singing and it wouldn't stop. And I, I don't know where they were going with it. It wasn't even a funny parody. And they brought people in and then they left. And this just felt like. God, this felt so listless to me and just a horrible way to end the political material on SNL for the season. All right. So we're going to talk about this one, Mike. Oh, boy. Because I like this. This was one of the rare SNL cold openings this year. I thought actually had some ambition and some energy. <laughs> like, it's, it, that's ex- the exact opposite opinion that you had of it. So we got to talk about this because I had tweeted last night where I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, this is actually kind of fun. I'm not used to SNL putting an effort on a cold opening. So this is cool. And a couple people were like, are we watching the same show? But then I got like 10 likes on that tweet too. So a lot of people agreed with me, but people who didn't agree with me are very vehement about it. So let's, let's talk about this. Why did you not like this? Because I was, I didn't, didn't think you could hear most of the jokes because it was not plotted out very well. You couldn't understand what they were saying. You had Robert the effing Nero screwing it up once again because he can't say live from New York. Why did they bring him back? I know. He was done. We were done with the Mueller stuff. Stop bringing him back. <laughs> Maybe he's a vampire. He cannot be killed. Oh, but then you had 80 who missed her first cue because she was sliding onto the desk and you couldn't hear what she was singing. But all that being said, I thought it was fun. And I'm like, well, they did something fun with Trump for one, so I appreciate they did something exciting for the season finale. And I will say this was the only sketch of the episode I liked. Mm. And I am shocked that so many people hated it so much. So please explain yourself, Mr. Bloom. I just wanted them to get up and do something. <laughs> okay. I think it's because I've compared it in the past where, again, you have these other Donald Trump-esque musical numbers where they go places. Either you have people come in and do something and provide their own little flavor and then stay on for it, or they actually, like, get up and dance around like this was a up-tempo song it's queen it's don't stop me now you just have the four of them looking down the barrel of the camera singing uh i thought the the way the lyrics were divvied up was very weird i would not be surprised if there's something that like cecily wrote considering that she's saying the vast majority of it and to your point it was also i mean it was in the original key which was sung by freddie mercury who had a supernatural voice but it sat in such a weird place for the women where I think one of your notes about 80 is totally proper because they had to keep jumping around octaves to sort of land their vo- voice in the right place. I I did not understand really any of the jokes. Like, the the words went by so quickly that maybe if I looked at the lyrics, I would like them more. I just didn't want to look at Donald Trump for an uncut <laughs> five minutes straight 
with Alec Baldwin's fish face. I couldn't tell when Kate came out if she was Wilbur Ross or Rudy Giuliani because they're essentially the same bald and creepy impression. When they bring out Don Jr. and Eric, that was fun. I don't know why Eric referenced the Muppet Show of all things, but Eric's going to Eric. That That's just the laundry list of things where, look, it could have been worse. I agree that he could have just read off the headlines that, that hit the week. So I'm glad they ended tried to end on a a fun note, as it were, but it did not land for me, especially even compared to the, this episode last year where they were doing more interesting musical-based things with the Trump administration. Okay. Yeah, because I was curious why people hated this one so much. And my theory was, like, this sketch was actually kind of pro-Trump, like, ha-ha, I got away with it, screw all of you. Like, it was a different tack than they tend to take on the show. And that's why I thought people didn't like it, because they just don't like anything where Trump looks like he's winning. So that was my suspicion why people didn't like it. I think mm. a lot of people just kind of butthurt over that kind of stuff. But you raised some very valid points. I will take them into consideration. And I will fully admit, I love that song, Don't Stop Me Now. Oh, yeah, same. I'm a big fan of the movie Shaun of the Dead, where it is used in a very pivotal moment. Have you seen that movie before? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The zombie scene when they're fighting off zombies with pool sticks Mm -hmm. set to the tone of Don't Stop Me Now. So it is possible I was somehow relating those in my head thinking, oh, I like Shaun of the Dead. So this sketch is good. I don't know. I I will. Again, I will admit, though, this is the only time I think I smiled for most of this episode. And what's interesting also, I think you make an interesting point about how they ended this season politically compared to how they ended the Christmas episode politically, where they sang Muller, All I Want for Christmas is You. Yeah. Like, what a difference five months makes in how they approach that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said. I don't want to get into this. I'm not especially political, but it, it is very interesting if they even slightly hint at Trump winning something and being smug and a victor that the internet goes insane and they cannot handle this sketch that even existed in the first place. I, I do think that's very interesting. Like you said, the tone has changed somewhat. Let's talk about this Paul Rudd monologue for a second. I thought it was cute enough, but I really liked the concept that they approached it with. Uh, an SNL, you know, appearance is like a, a, a monologue is like a best man toast. It should be heartfelt. It should be funny. And, you know, I like the way he personified SNL. And there were some fun meta jokes in there about, you know, back in the 70s when I was 30, the Studio 54 references. So it was a good, affable way to reintroduce Paul Rudd after the number of times he's hosted. Yeah, no, I agree. It was, this is a really fun monologue. He's very good and very charming and, Damn it, I wish he had just hosted SNL in 2013 when it was a little better. <laughs> well, speaking of another, uh, or I guess not speaking of another, let's talk about this recurring sketch. Oh! Yeah, I think, I think Colleen Rafferty, I think we should beam you up or send you back in time and maybe not make you return again. Because I feel like now that we have seen the umpteenth version of it, Mario, I feel like this was the Debbie Downer phenomenon where the first time it really made everyone bust a gut because it made Ryan Gosling and everyone else laugh so hard. They've really tried to make lightning strike twice for like the fourth or fifth time now. And I, I'm sad to say it's just not working anymore. Yeah, it's just the law of diminishing returns. It's just it's crazy. Like if this had been the first Mrs. Rafferty sketch, it probably would have done pretty well. Yeah. But like we know every beat of these sketches. This is Kristen Wiig era all over again. It's Cecily's going to say something. The male host will say something. And then she'll say, well, my experience was a little different. And we're going to go exactly into the same beats. We're going to cut to 80, her trying not to crack up. It's, I have seen this sketch so many times. There's nothing they could do that would possibly make me enjoy it. So, yeah, it's just, man, like at one point I'm thinking, is this Kate's last show? Is that why we're pulling this one out? <laughs> And if it's not Kate's last show, then like, why did you choose that? Why do we think this is a excellent season finale material? Like maybe 
maybe this stuff is still killing on the internet. I haven't really re- read the Twitter reaction to the sketch. I'm sure there are a lot of people that were like high-fiving that it came back, but my God, there's nothing new. There's no new ground to mine here. I just think if they just don't make her pantsless for one of these renditions, it'll be something new. Like, there are only so many euphemisms she can make to the point where I'm pretty sure she repeated a few this yeah. time. Like, there's only so many times you can come up with rhyming euphemisms for your vagina and your butthole. Yeah, and and a couple people on my Twitter feed were talking about that. They're like, what a waste of Cecily Strong it is in this sketch that all she is doing is just doing a monologue and setting up Kate for something. And then I'm like, why is the host even in this sketch? He's just he's there just to set up her monologue and be climbed on at a certain point. Like, it's I don't know. It's just really weird thought process behind why you'd select these sketches and why you'd keep doing this one over and over. I just don't get it. Well, speaking of weird thought process. Mario, how did we come to Pete Davidson rapping about the merits of Grace and Frankie, the Netflix show? You know, Mike, I have gone over that question with my therapist the last couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where my life has gone that we've come to this point that this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But yeah, this is a rap that we have decided was going to be on SNL last night. I didn't get much out of it. I, I don't know. Did you get much out of this one? I mean, not particularly. I understood where they were going at first with, you know, Pete rapping about how much he loves Game of Thrones, only to come up with a bunch of incorrect facts. I feel like we've seen that before. Hard to pivot into Grace and Frankie, which felt a little bit lol random again of like, yeah, I'll do this rap about this, this really, you know, uh, female heavy show that I, Pete Davidson, probably would not be into. They went super descriptive with it, going into certain plot points that I don't think would necessarily be funny to anybody but people who are into the show. I will say it was a, a little sad that they brought on this guy. His name's not Grey Worm, uh, but his, his character's name, Grey Worm on Game of Thrones. I was a little sad that they brought him on for the cameo, but he is a rapper. There's footage of him rapping on behind the scenes of Game of Thrones. Why did he not do something? Like, it's crazy how they did not utilize him whatsoever. Instead, they bring out Paul Rudd to also rap about Grace and Frankie. Like, I kind of wished... You know, if I had my druthers, keep the DJ Khaled stuff. That's that's fine. It's really weird. Uh, but I would say have Paul Rudd sort of do what the Emma Stone thing was when she sort of did raps about like, oh, I, this is my thing that I like to do for a hobby. I wish Paul Rudd had done a rap about like another completely random show. You know, that I feel like that would have been a little better than just having him also go on about Grace and Frankie, considering I don't know Jack about Grace and Frankie. All right. So, Mike, you're telling me in the year 2019 that SNL takes very talented people and puts them on the air and does not use them to their proper talent level? <laughs> the hell you say? <laughs> I like how you keep referencing the year it is, but you're like, this is not 2013. This is 2019. You really are providing a nice calendar timestamp for people listening to this or date tent, I should say. Yeah, exactly. I like to uh, date all my podcasts so they're unlistenable later. That, that's always my goal. But yeah, <laughs> again, typical in keeping with SNL, bring on people who are very good at a certain talent and don't let them do it and make them do something else. So I will say, in my opinion, the lone highlight of this episode might have come with what's next. What's wrong with this picture? And let me just say at the top of this, this was a dumb sketch. Like literally, the point was the three contestants are all super stupid. It's that Barbie Instagram sketch with Donald Glover put in a game show form it started off super weird, but I feel like once we got into the show, I don't know, there were some stupid stuff, especially coming from Paul Rudd. His guesses in particular were some of my favorites, but just the ridiculous guesses they were coming up with for these pictures. Oh boy, what to say here? 
how do I be? A, should I be a diplomat? This may be our last podcast ever, Mike. Like, should I should I give the God's honest truth, or should I be very nice and polite here? What do you think? I, don't know, I would say don't salt the earth at the moment. So, spend, so spend, we have time at the end for you to do that. A plenty. Yeah. Well, I've been watching a lot of older SNL episodes, a lot of old game show parodies and stuff. And the whole time I was sitting through the sketch thinking, if this had been like in the Dana Carvey era or like Norm MacDonald had written the sketch, how funny this one might have been. Mm-hmm. And so that's my that is my succinct wrap up of this sketch in particular. It was a good idea. If you had good writers on the show, you could pull this one off and it would be pretty funny. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's 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 my honest opinion. Good idea. I wish someone better had written this. I thought the writing was fine. I think the performances from AD and Pete were okay. I think Paul Rudd did the best job of selling this, in my opinion. Uh, and, you know, with some weird call and responses. But the fact that, again, he's so affable and just, like, bringing a, a, um, an amount of simplicity into it to the point where Keenan, as host Elliot Pants, you know, calls his name. And he's like, oh, what, what do you want? And he says, oh, I'm introducing you. He goes, oh, thank you. And then that's basically it. I don't know. There's there's a charm that Paul Rudd brings to these characters that I think shown in full force here. And I guess it sort of lit my way through this sketch. Though again, I will say this was probably my lone highlight of the episode. Yeah, you're like a you're like a uh, a man in the desert starving for moisture, Mike. You got a little moisture, and you're like, that was pretty good. And I'm like, no, you're in the desert. See, your 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 standards are skewed, Mike. That's that's what the season of SNL once again 2019 to bring it up. That's what this does to you. You find this little morsel that was it was kind of funny. You're like, you know, that was actually pretty good for this year. Yeah, I'll lick anything that I can. You know, gives me some sort of nourishment. Hey, I mean, that's why we're co-hosts, Mike. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Going to Weekend Update here, what do you think about our recurring guest, Judge Jeanine Pirro, in a Cecily Strong physical comedy tour de force, and Leslie Jones' commentary on the recent uh, abortion law in Alabama? Well, the Jeanine Pirro one, I mean, that's always political commentary, which I really don't give a crap about one way or another. But again, this one's a little different because she does the physical shtick, and I, I really liked her throwing herself off the chair last time and the water bit was especially funny this time because i'm pretty sure most of that stuff colin was getting thrown at him was not happening in dress rehearsal yeah he seemed very surprised by some of those so i appreciated that it was very spontaneous off the cuff cecily is is very talented at stuff like that i i don't give her due nearly enough but it was this was a fun little bit i like this one yeah i think she she does a great job with this it's so interesting i honestly felt you could take several points of this weekend update and have it be the final thing. Like, I'm so surprised that he did this Janine Pirro thing first. And then Colin and Michael sat there sopping wet for the rest <laughs> of weekend update. Cause you could totally end with like them just yeah. throwing water on top of each other. Same thing with the always classic read each other's jokes. I'm so surprised we didn't end on that. And then we went to Leslie after that. That's like a weird sort of epilogue to this big climactic ending. Yeah. I mean, that, Right there in a nutshell is one of the problems with SNL in 2019, the year of our Lord, (laughs) that they make weird decisions in where stuff is placed. Like you said, the water stuff should be at the end because it really there's a famous bit where Will Ferrell was on there once as a uh, update correspondent and he was talking about Ellen DeGeneres and he started puking. Mm -hmm. And then Norm tried to try to follow that joke with puke all over the desk. (laughs) You don't follow a joke, as Will, <laughs> as Norm MacDonald said, note to self, never follow a vomit spewing guy with a joke. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's the fundamental things you do. The water stuff should have been at the end. And if not, you end with Colin and Michael Che reading each other's jokes, because that was the highlight of the episode. That was the highlight of maybe the season. That was one of the funniest things I've seen on TV in a long time. I don't know why they ended with the Leslie one. 
That does not, the structure of that is wrong. I, I mean, I have a feeling I know why they did. And it again goes back to SNL's approach of political material going for the clapter above the laughter is because, yeah. look, understandably so, this abortion law has really had a profound effect, especially on the women of this country. I think Leslie going out there was her sort of making a statement and the show making a statement to end Weekend Update on for the entire season of like, this is how we feel about it. So I can understand from a from a, a conceptual perspective, why you would do it. But suffice it to say, the other two would have been much stronger endpoints. This one, mm-hmm. the Leslie stuff wasn't necessarily that funny to me. It was really emotional and energetic, which I really appreciated, but I wouldn't say it was the most laugh-out-loud funny, though I do like her calling Colin a flat, white, privileged latte. Yeah, I mean, you you summed it up. You just said it. They value clapter over laughter, which... Mm-hmm is 100% backwards from how I would approach comedy. And this is why I have a hard time really relating to the idea of what comedy is in the year of our Lord 2019, that I I don't value clapter. I don't get it. Like, I don't effing care what Leslie Jones's stance is on abortion. Thank you. I'm glad you came out and got a lot of applause for it. But like, the stuff that was before that an update was way more like SNL. So that, I don't know. It's just, it's just a weird thing that, yeah, she was strong in her performance. I don't think that stuff belongs on SNL, but I'm in the minority. I'm sure lots of people disagree. I would much rather talk about the uh, racist Martin Luther King jokes, though. Well, it's so interesting because I always enjoy when they do this, but I felt like for this time out, and feel free to disagree with you, me here, Mario, I don't know, it felt like they were playing it up a bit, particularly Colin. I think he said why several times in a row. And that felt a little like stage, like I can't believe I read this racist joke. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It was a little over the top, but the material was so strong. I don't think it mattered. Yeah. I mean, I I do agree with you. Yeah. They're really milking it at this point. I mean, I think, you know, the Catholic church, uh, face down ass up was (laughs) incredible. And the, the Martin Luther King thing, I know that they basically painted Colin of let's have him tell racist jokes. Basically, in its entirety, uh, since we've been doing this bit. But I think by, they ended with the strongest one. Uh, Martin Luther King got killed because he wouldn't shut up, basically. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. The joy in those sketches is, and we have to take them at face value. We have to accept that what they're telling you is the truth, that they're really reading them for the first time. I don't know how that works with dress rehearsal. I'm just going to buy that they're telling you the truth. If that is indeed the truth, then the joy in those jokes comes is looking at their face when they finally hit that line on the cue card before they read it and they know where it's about to go. And I love that their face just crinkles, mm-hmm. especially Colin Joe. So I agree he milks the why and the all and the overreaction too much, but it is so much fun watching their face when they see and that the face down ass up. When you saw Michael Che giggle when he saw where that joke was going, it was one of the greatest things I've seen on SNL this season. All right, well, let's move on here and go into this music box sketch, which was essentially one extended fart joke turned into a very weird Twilight Zone ending. I know we can, we can kind of, I think we can kind of sort of like go bing, bang, boom through these post update sketches since none of them really popped in my opinion. But did you have any thoughts about this one? This was terrible. It was ridiculous. I'm like, why? Who wrote this? Who put this on SNL? This is what we're doing with our valuable network airtime. And it was funny, I was kind of ranting about it on Twitter last night. I'm like, this antique store sketch, really? And somebody, some guy wrote back, I forget, I apologize if you're listening. He said, I have a three-year-old. My three-year-old is the exact demographic for that sketch. He did not laugh once at the fart jokes. And he's like, and to answer your question, he did get the joke. He just didn't laugh. (laughs) 
I mean, I think the demographic was that little girl that was in that table in front that Kyle was so harsh to. That was the demographic for this. Because it was definitely a take on the sketch he'd done before of like, hey, I don't know this weird song. Oh, wait, I do know this song. But it just... I, I, I still can't believe they ended with the Twilight Zone. Why did they end on the Twilight Zone? What the hell was that? Well, you need an ending on a sketch. Why not? I mean, you can't just cut to black. I think this episode broke me. <laughs> it really did. It was. This is brutal. The end of this episode is terrible. This Antique Star 1, I don't get it. And like, I feel bad for Cecily and Paul Rudd trying to sell this material. <laughs> Oh, boy. Let's go to the view. No, it's worse. Yeah, this is the second time in two months that we've done this. I think it was okay the first time. I think people really uh, talked about how 80s uh, 80s impression of Meghan McCain really popped. Now that you sort of have that and it's become more rote, this was okay. They did their impressions. They fought a little bit. They had Paul come out as Pete uh, Buttigieg. And then, you know, you had uh, Beck come out as his husband, then ended with them fantasizing over Joe Biden. That's literally the sketch, and I have nothing to say about it. Yeah, I, I didn't get, like, usually if you do something topical like this, it would be earlier in the show. I don't know why this is so late in the show. It, like, had no momentum, and it went on forever. Well, well, that's why it was late in the show, because I'm pretty sure it did not work in dress. It's like they're just running out the clock on the season. This is a basketball team up by 20 points, although I'd argue SNL's down by 20 points at this point. And they're just running out the clock, finishing the season. There was, man, it was just, I can't even say it was bad. It was just not interesting. I could yeah. not understand why I was watching TV at that point. I agree. I think it wasn't like absolutely terrible. It wasn't a four minute fart joke, but at the same time, I'm like, we're not really doing anything with this, so I'm a little confused. You know, at, le at least when they introduced it last month, there was, with I think it was with Sandra O's oh character, or maybe with another host, there, there was another sort of opinion behind it, but here they were just sort of doing it to do it, or maybe to do some uh, Pete Boot Edge Edge material. But speaking of retreading material, it's been a while since we've seen a Leslie and Kyle sketch, but it looks like canonically, are we tying a bow onto that? Though this made me trip so much, Mario, because they start off by making reference to the previous sketches as a sketch within a sketch. So, like, <laughs> this is a sketch of a sketch that refers to another sketch. I don't know. I, w I had already bailed on this episode by this point, so I was not perhaps ready to give it enough of my attention to realize they were doing that. But yeah, it's, I was never really into the Kyle and Leslie stuff. It was never my thing. I know a lot of people love that stuff. I don't know. This We're just, again, I think we're running out the season at this point. Were you a fan of this one? I mean, it was fine. I was a fan of it just because I loved how unconventional it was and really, like, creating almost an SNL cinematic universe with the number of times yeah. that they kept making it recurring. It just is so weird to me that all those sketches now in this world are fictional, and this is the real actors talking about the fact that they were filming sketches. Like, it just makes my brain melt down a tiny bit. I thought, you know, the montage that they did was weird but fun with the cotton candy close to you playing because of just them raw-dogging it on the floor. <laughs> Well, and I think Paul Rudd's reactions also really made it to just him being so vociferously disgusted to everything that was going on around him in his dressing room. But, you know, I think this was the highlight of the post-update stretch, though that's not saying much. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing. These these uh, Kyle and Leslie sketches are so self-referential and meta and, like, insular that this is the kind of stuff that's going to get cut from the reruns. Mm. So, like, this is this this... It's, it's someday they'll remember, oh, back in 2019, the year of Jesus Christ, 
They, uh, <laughs> they Jesus these, Christ. Yes. They used to have, I'm adding things every time now, but yeah, they used to have these Kyle and Leslie sketches. Remember those? Oh, we don't see those in reruns. What were those like? It was, oh, it was this whole little universe of them having a romance. I don't know. And I will say, it's funny. I just did a, uh, staff picks episode. That's my movie podcast on McGruber where they do that exact same joke where it's like a romantic interlude. And then they quickly cut to raw dogging sex in the middle of, of like the most gratuitous sex ever. So like, like I just saw that joke. So it, maybe it didn't land to me uh, on me as well. So yeah, this I'm, I'm glad people got some closure to the Kyle and Leslie stuff, but it doesn't do much for me. All right. Let's finish things off. The final sketch of season 44, Mario. About yes. Blathior, Mistress of the Nine Hells. Now, I have on good authority that this was actually something that was done in the Emma Thompson episode last week, but got cut at dress rehearsal, where actually, I, I don't know if it was Melissa, if Emma Thompson had played the mom, or if Melissa had like played the mom and Emma Thompson had played Blathior instead, or Bialthor, whatever the, the demon's name is. But how did you think this season ended with the demon sleepover, Ouija board, kerfuffle? Yeah, this is one that I thought was a decent idea. I could see, and I hate to say this again, if you had really strong sketch writers, you could pull off the sketch and make it kind of fun. But it just didn't really have much edge to it. It was kind of awkward. You could tell it wasn't rehearsed very well. Like the jokes, like the thing with a go-gurt. He walks in the hands of the go-gurt. Like I'm trying to picture Norm MacDonald or someone writing that joke in the 90s and they, the writers would have laughed at them. Like, that would, no, that's the be funnier. But I don't know. Did Did you like this one at all? Uh, I mean, it was fine. I liked the concept well enough, especially near the end where, you know, they really hammer it home that this demon wanted to be part of the sleepover, but she feels like she's bullied and she calls her dad Satan. I think, honestly, Paul Rudd made this sketch. I think he did Dorky Dad so well that the Gogurt bit was, like you said, it it was not maybe the the most uh, well-written sardonic stuff, but I think he sold it really well. I thought, actually, when we were going to be watching this sketch, that it was going to be the uh, recurring sketch of 80 having a crush on the dorky dad and talking about yeah. doing really dirty things to them. But no, we went in a completely new direction. It's a little odd that we're ending on a Melissa Villasenor vehicle, but I mean, you know, I guess, I guess segueing into, you know, our overall thoughts on the season, are we to assume that no big sketch to culminate people's time on the show means that nobody's going to be leaving the cast going into season 45? Yeah. I mean, that's, you may lose one or two people quietly, but you're, I don't think you're going to lose any of the big heavy hitters for sure. Yeah, because I know that there had been some controversy going around where like Beck and Kyle had been putting stuff on Snapchat of like last show and people weren't sure if that meant last show of the season or like <laughs> their last show or whether they were trolling or anything. But I feel like if it was them or Kate or Cecily or especially Keenan that, you know, they would do a big finale, right? Like even something like what they did with Kristen Wiig, where it wasn't even a funny sketch. It was like, Hey, let's bring this person out and essentially have everyone say goodbye to them. They they deserve that much. Right. Well, I admire that you include Kyle Mooney in that group. Like if Kyle was not on the show anymore, how would you even know? Well, I guess maybe you could argue if he leaves, you know, in the summer that that Leslie and Kyle sketch would be the bow that sort of ended his run on SNL. And I guess that wouldn't make sense. I get. I mean, he had been on there a long time. I know it's funny to still hear people say, oh, Kyle's just gaining a foothold. He's going to make <laughs> his chance. Like he's been there, what, like seven years? Like yeah. it's crazy. So it's, yeah, it's Kyle Mooney one day will go down as one of the biggest wastes of talent on SNL, I think, because I love him. I think he's so funny. And I've never thought SNL was the right place for him. Like he should be off making more stuff like Brigsby Bear, which I think was a masterpiece. That's one of the best movies I've seen in the last couple of years. So, like, I, I almost wish he would get fired. It would be better for him, I think. 
Well, speaking of that, let's talk a bit about this cast because I feel like we're not going to get anybody to leave. I don't know if we're going to get any major shakeups because it does seem like, for what it's worth, Lorne does seem satisfied with the cast that he has at the moment. But in your opinion, Mario, who would you want to get rid of (laughs) as we move into season 45 in 2019 in the year of our Lord and Odimini? (laughs) Oh, boy. This is where I get in trouble because I've had an opinion here I have not shared on this podcast the entire season because this is the stuff you get in trouble for. I would get rid of most of the cast. I would really do a hard reboot or reset or whatever because there's a lot of talented people there that I think have been there just too long. Mm -hmm. Like I love Cecily has had such a fantastic run on the show. I just think she's she's done it. She's been there before. Like I would love to see new people take over and I'm not singling her out. There's bigger people than her like the writing on this show was embarrassing at times this year would you agree with that yeah i mean i would say overall with this year it was actually very comparable to season 43 in that it was so up and down which i guess is typical of an snl season but again coming off of season 42 which was so strong it just really sort of blended into one kind of big pile of meh. Not to say there weren't highlights of it. We've talked about them. We, even with the Sandler episode, there was some stuff that we still absolutely loved. But I feel like there were some lowlights as well. And just in general, some stuff that we would say, yeah, I like this. Or, yeah, this worked just fine. And mm-hmm. it, for me, it really does come down to a writing thing. I think if there's one thing that SNL should keep moving forward, whoever's been hiring your hosts, keep them, give them a freaking raise. Because yeah. for the second year in a row... Every single one of these hosts, from the veterans to the first-time people, just all knocked it out of the park. Uh, I think that they all had some sketch or some moment where their performance was just really, really fantastic. And it's crazy to think about a time when that was not going to be the case. And maybe it's because we sort of steered away from the, like, athletes, pop stars side of things, where they might not necessarily have the best acting skills, but... There were so many good hosts here. You know, you're in terms of first time hosts, your Liev Schreiber's, your Don Cheadle's. I thought Kit Harrington was a big surprise. We talked about Sandler. We, you loved Halsey. Uh, uh-huh. you know, I honestly, I think the two hosts who really did not bring it necessarily were James McAvoy, who I think had some aspects, but maybe just the writing was not big for him. And as you said in our uh, December podcast, maybe surprisingly, Steve Carell just mm-hmm. was not did not have great delivery, which is surprising for a recurring host. But I would say across the board, almost really, really talented hosts who just threw themselves into each and everything, no matter what the quality may be. And I really commend the show for that. Yeah, no, I agree. The hosts were great for the most part. Most of the cast is solid. Again, I think they've been there too long. Most of them, I would mm. love just to have some turnover. Cause I think, like you said, there's probably some senioritis involved. Just people have been doing this for so long. It's just rote kind of at this point. But this is the statement that I'm going to say that's going to get me in trouble. And I apologize at Mario J. Lanza. That's me on Twitter. Just yell at me later. I have grown up with SNL. SNL is the preeminent comedy show of my lifetime. And I've been a budding young comedy writer. I look to the show. I look up to it. At every point in my life, I can look at SNL and say, everyone on that show is funnier than me. These are like the funniest people in America. This is not the worst era of SNL I've ever seen, but it is the first time in my life that I don't feel that way. Like, Mm -hmm. I actually watch these shows and I'm like, I don't think everyone who's putting this show together is funnier than me at the moment. And it's a really weird feeling. And I don't think I'm necessarily like the funniest guy ever. It's just I'm amazed that some of this stuff and the choices they make make it to the air. And this is what SNL is at the moment. So that's the statement that I know is going to get me in trouble. But I will follow that up. 
to say that there was a moment back in the 90s, the late 90s, when the writing was considered especially weak on SNL. I don't remember exactly when it was, 99, 2000. There was a very famous website. You might be too young to know this. There's a guy named Patrick Lonergan. He's very famous for uh, uh, recording SNL history and keeping track of SNL history. And he was like, you know, the writing on this show is so weak right now. It's astounding. And he put together a website. And this website was called SNLU, S-N-L-Y-O-U. And it was basically for fans to prove that they can actually write better sketches that are going are to show up on the actual show. And it was a big deal at the time. They actually featured that website on Entertainment Weekly. It was in the magazine. It was mm. like one of the big SNL sites at the time. I was one of the writers on that show. That's where I got my start in sketch comedy writing. We'd write sketches and we'd basically compare the stuff we could come up with with the stuff that was actually on the air that week. And it was amazing that you could actually see a comparable show from people who weren't even professional sketch writers. So that's basically what I would say about this era as we sign off on what will be the last time they ever allow us to appear on uh, SNL After Party. I think a website like SNLU would actually fly right now because I think the writing is that weak. I think the general public of SNL fans could write things that are actually comparable to the show, and I hate to say that. Well, don't you think we live in an era of SNLU, though? I mean, you look at like college humor, even something like Funny or Mm -hmm. Die, where they're putting out sketches, or even just random YouTubers are now putting out sketches where I think one of the reasons why, and this is sort of a microcosm of SNL's political material, but I guess to your point, maybe more widespread to the show overall, is just there's so much more competition out there in terms of sketch writing that... I personally, I, I mean, I would disagree that I, you know, I would think that, oh, these, I'm funnier than some of these people on there. I also wonder if it's going back to a generational thing that maybe mm-hmm. this is sort of like what we're looking at in terms of, you know, millennial SNL, if you will, mm-hmm. that you have these people who are my age in their 20s and 30s giving their take on the show as opposed to how people get their take in the 90s and the early 2000s, which will be a bit different, especially from a political perspective. But I do wonder as well, you know, what the repercussions are of having essentially an entire wide ocean out there where you can post your own sketch content and not necessarily need to get onto SNL in order to, you know, have it be seen by people. Yeah. And people have mentioned that before because I have expressed the sentiment. I'm like, I don't feel like SNL is really aiming for me anymore. And they're like, well, you know, you're 45. This is the first time in your lifetime that you're older than most of the people who are making the show. It's true. Which is, is very, it's a very valid point. So it's, it's really interesting. But I see stuff on the show like when Michael Che and Colin Jost read each other's jokes and how hard I'm laughing at that bit. And it makes me wonder how much really fun, dangerous comedy like that is being cut week in and week out so we can do some dumb rap song. Like, it just makes me want, it's always just, to me, it's the choices, the choices they make of what they think the audience wants. And it leads into a bigger question. Who is the audience for Saturday Night Live right now? Mm. It's a very interesting question if you think about that. Who who are they marketing this show for? I think they're marketing for the people who are going to watch the YouTube videos the next day, to be completely honest. I think that because, again, they have this ability to be super viral. And I think that's why they also go through these huge production values, which make for fantastic products to look at that might not necessarily have the laugh out loud material uh, that we're necessarily used to. In my opinion, I said last season for me was the season of Diner Lobster. For me, <laughs> to be quite honest, this is probably the season of House Hunters for me. And yeah. it's and it's ideally the direction that I would like the show to go into. And I liked when they did go in that direction. You know, I feel like a spiritual predecessor to the chop sketch was the from the Don Cheadle episode, the like uh the bake off sketch with the really weird cakes. I <laughs> would love and again, these are my personal proclivities, so your taste may vary, much like with those cakes. But I would love if they kept going down that path 
knowing that they could stick the landing sometimes when it came to this super detailed but super weird stuff, I would prefer that than for them to feel like they need to make political commentary, you know, or to make a statement about certain events that are going on. I, I feel like the more they sort of lean back into that pocket, I'm going to be more excited to watch the show. And if you pair these fantastic hosts with it, I think it would be a daring, to your point, adventurous and overall enjoyable time, which I can say there were certainly moments that I enjoyed with a lot of this season, but I, I'm always wanting more. I'm a, I'm a selfish person when it comes to comedy. And, and that's kind of what I want to gobble up more in season 45. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because if the show goes silly and frivolous, they get accused of being tone deaf, mm. which is you've seen that happen to Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon, the late night talk show host who generally doesn't do politics. He's not hard hitting and he is accused. Oh, he's just frivolous. It's just light fluff. It's tone deaf. This is not what the country needs right now. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a very interesting position that SNL finds himself in. Like you said, there's so much competition. Everyone else has a sketch comedy show. I'm not sure SNL occupies the place in preeminence that it once did. Mm. Like, it's funny, like, I, I post on Facebook that I do SNL recaps. People might not be aware of this because if you follow me on Twitter, I talk about SNL all the time. I don't talk about SNL all that much on Facebook where I have a more older crowd, older audience, people that are my age peers. And it is funny when I talk about SNL on Facebook, the reaction I tend to get is, why? Like, why would you recap SNL? And I'm like, well, because it's, you know, it's sketch comedy show, part of my lifetime. It's a very interesting show. I love tracing the history and the evolution. I like seeing the ebbs and the flows, the trends. But like to people my age or people in their 40s, it's almost like you're saying you're doing recaps of Johnny Carson Tonight Show episodes. <laughs> like they're like, really? Like SNL is actually a thing that people still care about. And like, it's really that's that's why I bring up this question. Who is this show even for right now? Well, and it's just an interesting question. It's going to be interesting going into season 45 as well, because that's it won't link up with the 2020 election, but it'll be during the primaries and all that. And so you have to wonder, given the current path that they're going down, you'd have to assume we're going to go with some more gratuitous celebrity cameos to play a lot of these people. Don't be surprised if we get, you know, a Jason Sudeikis as Joe Biden versus Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump going into the fall of 2020. You know, it's something that they it's a lot of hits for them and a lot of ratings. So I think Lauren is sort of going with this idea of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, though. Yeah. We've expressed many times that it is a little broken, but, you know, <laughs> that's that's just our opinion. Yeah, again, we're just two people. We have strong opinions about stuff. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to disagree. I just try to raise points that maybe someone could find interesting. And, yeah, it's I will still watch SNL. I have not missed an episode since, what, 85, 86. I even forget the exact. It was like I think the Pee Wee Herman episode. The Thanksgiving special of 85, I believe, was my first episode that I really started watching the show. So, yeah, I'm still going to watch it. I will still comment on the trends, but I'm always disheartened with – or not always. Generally disheartened with the choices they make, that they could go one direction with the show and they go another one instead. And I don't understand why, and I just disagree with it. But, you know, to each his own. Yeah, exactly. I'm intrigued to see no matter what, what's going to happen when they come back from this summer. We always know that it's a little bit of shaky ground when they try to get sorted back into things. But as much as some of this cast may overstay their welcome, I really like them. I really love the choices they made with the hosts. And I really love a good amount of the sketches that they put out there. So I want to thank John and C for giving us the opportunity to sort of adapt our show into this new monthly format and talk about things in a bite-sized way, though this podcast was a bit more of a bigger 
Byte. I am at a Mike Bloom type. Mario is at Mario J. Lanza. Mario, what projects are you working on in the internet ethos if people are excited to check out more of your work? All right. What I'm doing, most people know me as a commentator on the TV show Survivor. I have a website called The Funny 115, which is counts down all the funniest moments in Survivor history. Even if you don't watch Survivor, I think it's pretty good. I I have spent many, many years. I've written 400 and something entries now, and I'm just wrapping up my third version with the top 30 funniest moments from seasons uh, 21 through 30. I'm very proud of what's about to come up, and I'm going to spend a lot of time writing these entries. It will probably be the last Survivor writing on the internet I ever do, so I'm going to try to end with a bang. And then after that, I'm going to turn full-time to my movie podcast, which is called Staff Picks. You can find it on staffpicks.podbean.com. And this is the podcast dedicated to movies that deserve a little more love or a little attention or just someone to come on and champion them and tell people why they're better than people remember. And that's a uh, very feel strongly, very strongly about that. It's kind of interesting that people are used to me being Mr. You know, Negative Nancy here on this podcast. My whole shtick is that I only like saying positive things about things. I only like building things up. I don't like criticizing them. And that's my thing with staff picks and why that project kind of means something to me that I, uh, we have an episode coming out on McGruber. We have an episode coming out on the karate kid part two, just movies that never got much love. And I, I feel so strongly that they should. So just check out staff picks. If you want to hear more of me or catch me on Facebook or Twitter, I am always, I always have something interesting to say, hopefully. And I know that Mario and I are actually, people are ready to, uh, hear more of our dynamic and being less oppositional. <laughs> you and I will get together in a future episode to discuss the fantastic mockumentary drop dead gorgeous. Yes, Mike recorded a episode that I have one movie that I felt have always felt so strongly about that just needed people to champion it. Uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, the Kirsten Dunst, Kirstie Alley movie from 1999, one of the funniest goddamn movies that has ever been out. Complete flop. It really just needs people to kind of champion it. And Mike is the co-host that I picked for that one. We recorded it a couple weeks ago. I will have it out soon. Very excited about that one. So I am also a commenter on the show Survivor, though I think I'm more in the present timeline than Mario is in the past. Uh, so I do weekly podcasts on both Survivor, the U.S. version and Survivor South African version as well, which has just started up for the Rob Has a Podcast Network. I also cover The Amazing Race for them. I cover RuPaul's Drag Race, a number of reality shows as they keep going throughout the date tent of the year. Uh, I also do some writing. I write for Parade Magazine. I do a lot of exit press for said reality shows as well as miscellaneous articles. I do some coverage of the Star Trek universe for uh, for the Hollywood Reporter. I should have a piece actually coming out soon for the 25th anniversary of Star Trek The Next Generation. And otherwise, yeah, I'm just sort of having material both written and verbal popping up here and there. So again, if you want to check out all the other stuff that Mario and I are doing, uh, be sure to do so. And thank you all so much for listening and offering your commentary as well and listening to the two of us drone on endlessly about our thoughts about SNL season 44. It might not have always been, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but we love this show to death. We wouldn't still be talking about it if we weren't. And so we want to see it do well. And so I've loved being able to give my thoughts from a macro perspective with you, Mario. It's been a pleasure to ride side saddle with you. Yes, I am have very been very excited to have you as my sidekick all season. Thank you. Well, Batman, that'll conclude this episode and this season of the Saturday Night Live After Party Month in Review podcast. I'm not sure if John and Steve are going to be doing some off-season stuff as they go into season 45. Time shall tell, but just make sure you are subscribed to this podcast because I'm sure a lot of great SNL-related stuff is going to pop up over the course of the off-season going into the fall 
Thank you all so much for listening. Mario, thank you so much again. Take care, everyone. Have a great summer. Bye-bye.